All right. Good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday. Glad to see you guys. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. I love being here. Love seeing you guys, being a body of Christ with you all. I have super, super good news today. So digging through this revelation study, I know you're not supposed to do this, but I did it anyway. I found the date. For real. I found it. I've been digging. I was looking. The, the Lord came down upon me, and I have discovered the date with like 100% certainty that the return of the Lord, the end times, is gonna, it's going to launch the end times. You guys ready for this? You guys, I'm about to give you like super classified information about the end times happening, and you guys are that not excited. I need to hear one more time. Who's excited to hear the date? When the Lord, okay, good, phew, just, not just me. Here is the date that will mark the end of times. You ready? The year, and give me like a couple, like a couple years grace, okay? So if it's off by a little bit, give me a little bit of grace, is that okay? You guys can write this down, you have your pens out? Okay, good. The year 33 AD. Do you know what happened then? There's this Jewish carpenter who is also a rabbi who got nailed to a cross. And most of the people didn't understand what was going on. And then what happened was three days later, he was dead in a tomb and he raised from the dead. And the same power that rose him from the dead came down on his people, his followers, so that he could rule and reign over this kingdom on earth through his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? And thus, the end times have begun. Isn't that amazing? You guys are like, wow, this is incredible. Wow, you're welcome for that. Now, this is where we're living. This is what the time we're living in. And so everything we're reading in Revelation has relevancy. It has truth to it. How we interpret it can be tricky. But we're going we're gonna to pump through one of the, to be, on, to be honest, one of my favorite verses, one of my favorite scriptures in Revelation we're talking about today, and that's Revelation 10 and 11. But if you've been like with us over the last few weeks, Pastor Rick's done a really great job at really trucking us through and unleashing the details and trying to figure out how to interpret this text the best we can. And most importantly, trying to find where is Jesus in all of this? What does this mean for us as Christ followers? What kind of imminency does it place on our hearts as people living in the last times? So, I know I'm like, if you're like me, sometimes we get stuck in the weeds, and so I kind of need to step back and take a look at where we're at. So here's a little glimpse of where we're at. We're right in the middle of Revelation 10 and 11. We talked about the, the seals, the, the seven seal judgments, where only the Lamb was, had the power to open the seals of these scrolls. Then there's this interlude where it talked about the 144,000, the martyrs in heaven, the silence in heaven. And then we get into these other seven judgments, the seven angels blowing trumpets, and today we're in this other pause, another interlude. We're going to talk about the strong angel, the small scroll, the two witnesses, these things that are kind of just images. We don't really understand them, uh, but they're really just powerful images. But I want to talk, and then later in the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the two beasts, Babylon. We're going to talk about the woman, woman child, dragon, and then the seven bulls, another series of seven judgments that are prophesied. And so this is where we're at today. And I want to talk to you why it's important that we're in between the trumpets and the bowls. The chaos, imagine yourself as John, getting these crazy visions about animals with all sorts of body parts, blowing all sorts of instruments, 
and trying to write it down and make sense of it so other people, when they read it, they would know what he's talking about. <laughs> Thank you, Holy Spirit, for guiding that process, because that's a ridiculous task. And so in between, and think about the heaviness of a judgment. You love your people, but you're the one telling them this is what's going to transpire for us as a people. It's a heavy burden to carry. And so what happens in these interludes is God stops for a second the intensity of the judgments to remind John what his calling is, who he is, what the promises are for him and for his people. And I don't know about you, but this is to me the biggest heart takeaway from this passage is sometimes God stops us in the intensities of life to remind us, don't forget who you are. Don't forget what this is all about. Don't forget you have victory already. Now back to the judgments. Let me tell you what to say. Like think of Moana. You guys seen Moana? Like when Moana gets to like the heart of like the problem, like the heart of the, 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 the climax of the issue, you know, she's about to let be let down and just go home and quit on her calling to restore the heart of Tefiti. Sorry if you've never seen it. But what happens? Grandma Tutu shows up and in the middle of that tension, Moana, don't forget who you are. And Moana's like, oh my gosh, I have, you know what I mean? And then she's like, I, I remember. So this is what's happening with John. Like literally God is coming down. It's like, don't forget what I've called you to do. Don't forget who you are and what purposes I've had for you. And so this breaks the tension. It breaks the hostility that John is probably, we can't see it. He's probably wrestling with a lot of this, the, the burden of writing this passage. Now, one other thing I want to make on these. And sometimes it's easy to naturally, as we read through the Bible, to read it, especially Revelation, chronologically. And Pastor Rick's kind of hinted at this too before, but we don't want to read these judgments as like, oh, there's these seven judgments, and then when those end, these judgments come, and when those end, these come. Because if you notice it, these judgments are actually more cyclical than they are chronological. It's the best way to read them. And so think about it. Here's the best analogy I have for them, is um, a symphony. If anybody's ever listened to a symphony, even a worship team is kind of like one small kind of symphony, right? So you have one instrument playing a loop. It's playing a certain amount of chords or a certain amount of notes, and it kind of has a repetition to it and a rhythm to it. And then another instrument joins in, and it has a rhythm to it, and it has a, has a, a, a process to it. It has a circle to it. And so the flutes and the cellos and the violins and all these instruments start combining, and what are they actually talking about, or what are they, what are they producing? They're producing one song together. Does that make sense? So this is the cyclical nature of these judgments, is each one of them have their own unique tone and their own unique, um, uh, what will you say, like unique instructions and exhortations, but all of them are singing the same song together. And here's what's great about a symphony, is all the build-ups, always in, in like a great masterpiece of a song, they all build up to like one climactic moment. Yeah? So there's this climax in the song where it's like, dun, 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 or whatever the song is. And all the instruments lead into that place of climax. This is all leading up to the climax of Christ's return. This is it. This is a means to get to the end. This is not the end. Amen? So when we read the judgments, we don't read them as like, oh, God's so angry at the world. He's just going to destroy this whole thing. Look how depressing these chapters are. This is the necessary process building up to the climax of Christ returning. Isn't that amazing? And so this is where we're at. And I love to be here, building up to this climactic moment. So we're going to jump right into Revelation chapter 10. It says this. 10 starting at 1. It says, Then I saw 
another mighty angel come down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head. This is important. His face shone like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. And his hand was, in his hand was a small scroll that had been opened. It's not sealed, it's opened. Also important. He stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a great shout like a roar of a lion. And when he shouted, seven thunders answered. So when the seven thunders, actually, if we go back, I want to point out a couple quick details. When we talk about the makeup of this angel, the symbology that's in it, two things really stand out. Number one, this is a mighty angel. He is strong. He is powerful. Some actually believe that the reason it says it has a small scroll was because he was so big. And so the scroll, small, the scroll looked really small in his hand. So the point is, he is a massive, beastly type of angel, just immense and magnificent. One foot on the land saying, he has comes in all authority over the land. One foot over the sea. He has all authority over the sea. Which matters because a couple chapters, we're going to talk about the two beasts that arise. One comes from the sea, one comes from the land. He's saying, I already have dominion over this place. In his hand was a tight small, I love this. It says, over his head was a rainbow. You guys, we grew up in children's church. What does a rainbow represent? The rainbow represents the truthfulness of God's promise that no longer will he destroy wickedness on earth by destroying humankind. He will not flood the earth again. He will not flame the earth again. He will not shake us until we die because we have wickedness in our heart. The promise was leading up to the Christ figure who would then die on behalf of our wickedness so that we could become holy rather than kill us for being wicked. Does that make sense? This is the promise. And so now you have this contrast of a beautiful, magnificent beast who has all authority on the sea and on land, who stands with the immense, immaculate grace of God. It says, I am here to forgive. I am here to love. I'm here to uphold the, the promises that you know true of God. And so the being in a presence of something like that would be just unbelievable. And so moving on to verse 4, it says this. It said, even when the thunders spoke... I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven, keep secret what the seven thunders said and do not write it down. Then the angel I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand toward heaven. He swore an oath to the name of the one who lives forever and ever. He swears an oath to God. Some people think this angel is Jesus, just to point that out, but this kind of makes it seem like he's not because Jesus wouldn't swear an oath he is God, so he wouldn't be swearing an oath to God. So, who created the heavens and everything in them, the earth and everything in it, and the sea and everything in it, he said, there will be no more delay. Here's the promise. The things that God said are happening, they're going to happen. I'm here to remind you of that. And so, for John, he's like, let me write this down. He said, wait, don't write that down. This is reminiscent of Daniel, if you remember that story. God gave Daniel a vision for the things to come, but he said, don't tell anybody. This is a true story. Me and Sivan were working out this, uh, this week, and I heard an old British man behind me, and he was, like, reciting poetry. So I was like, what's going on? Like, who, <laughs> who is, where are you, old Brit, and what poetry do you have for us? And I was like, what, what is this voice? Like, I'm like, is it in the loudspeaker? I couldn't figure it out. Turns out it was on my phone in my pocket. So my okole doesn't just dial people. It opens up apps, Bible apps, and has British men read Scripture through it. I, it's an app I never opened to, so I was just blown away. So Sivan, being Sivan, was like, Mark, this could be from the Lord. 
Let's listen to what he's reading. So I said, amen. And it, was, it just happened to be Proverbs 25. Proverbs 25 is, starts with this. It is God's heart to conceal a matter. It is the king's heart, it is a man's heart to reveal a matter. In other words, God has disclosed information and he reveals it and it's our glory in him to look and search that out. Isn't that amazing? And so now we have this information that he has received, that, de- that, uh, that John has received, but God says, don't. It's not ready to be revealed yet. I want you to know it to encourage your heart so that you may do this, finish the task that I've put before you. But to me, it's, uh, my hypothesis is what, he did, what we don't know that he told John in that moment was likely to do with the fulfillment of his promises. This is what it's going to look like, a little bit more direct. And I would love to know that. You would love to know that. I believe that God kept John from writing that for a purpose. So, then a voice from heaven spoke to me again. Go and take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and the land. So he's like, gulp. Okay, I'll walk up to this giant angel, take the scroll out of his hand. And then it moves on to say this. So I went to the angel, and I told him to give me the small scroll. Give me the small scroll. Yes, take it and eat it, he said. Wait, what? (laughs) I'm supposed to read a scroll, not eat a scroll. Take it and eat it. It will be as sweet as honey in your mouth, but it will turn sour in your stomach. This is, this is a strange verse. This is the word of God coming in a scroll through a messenger angel, and he's saying, eat it, and I want you to see how good it tastes going in, but how uncomfortable it's going to make your stomach after you digest it. And so I took the small scroll from the hand of the angel, and I ate it, and it was sweet to my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it turned sour in my stomach. Here's another fun fact. That same verse, Proverbs 25, that came out, Proverbs 25 says this, The one who eats too much honey, don't eat too much honey because you'll get sick. And honey is referring to the words or the blessings, the promises of God, because it says this, if you eat too much honey, you will get sick. If you try to dive too deep into the things of God, you're going to drive yourself crazy. So this is an interesting connection. So when we, here's the crazy thing. He's saying, when you, I'm going to give you this scroll. It's got this information on it. When you eat it, it's going to taste great. When you digest it, it's going to be overwhelming. (laughs) This is crazy. And so this is the truth about what this is. We don't know what's, again, on the scroll, but here's what we do know. We do know that the Word of God, in a prophetic manner, tastes good because it's like, yes, God's going to fulfill His promises. This is going to be amazing. But then you get to the reality of digesting what that looks like. Ooh, there's still judgments. Ooh, there's still suffering. Like, ah, there's still persecution. There's parts of the reality of what tasted so good that's going to be hard to swallow. And so this is what is kind of building up to us um, in this vision of the angel. So moving on. Did you know that John is not the only prophet who received a vision to eat a scroll? Ezekiel 3 says this, a little Old Testament connection. Ezekiel says, and he said to me, this is when Ezekiel's receiving his prophetic calling. He said to me, son of man, eat what is before you. Eat the scroll, then go and speak to the people of Israel. He's like, shoots. So I opened my mouth. He gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll. I'm giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, and it tasted sweet as honey in my mouth. So Ezekiel had the exact same experience, same kind of language. But then it moves here, Revelation 10, verse 11. Then I was told, this is a direct calling for John. I was told, you must 
prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So he's saying, this word that I've given you that's hard to digest, I need you to go and speak that to nations, to people with different languages, to different kings, different lands, different tribes, etc. I need you to prophesy. I need you to tell them the things of the Lord. And this is what makes it so difficult. And so here's the question. You know the truth about God for us. We know the things of God. We know the promises of God. We know the truths of the God's word. The question for us this morning, I believe, is are you actually able to declare God's truth even when it's difficult? Even when the people hearing it don't want to hear it? Because I tell you what, we are slipping into a culture where we don't want to offend people. We don't want to make people upset. Um, Our version of love has lost that element of like upholding God's standards and upholding the truth. And so we need to be a people who still have our prophetic witness intact. And I'm the t- I am the bright, shining example of this. I am the one who, if somebody is complaining to me, instead of telling them the truth of God's promise, I'll just be like, oh, <laughs> I'm so sorry, which is good. It's good to comfort people. But I don't ever move past that. I have a hard time. And there are some people who don't have a hard time, and they'll tell you how it is right up front. And we thank God for those people. Amen. But here's the thing. This is a prophetic calling of the church. We have a very, church in my opinion, the church at large, the church with a capital C is very good at shepherding, very good at teaching. We've spent the last 500 years really honing our teaching of God's word. But the prophetic witness in our communities is something that we need to rebuild. And this is what he's calling him again. He's saying, John, don't forget what your calling here is. You need to tell people the truth about who I am and the what is to come so that they know what rock to stand on when things get heavy, when stuff hits the fan. Who are you going to trust? Who are you going to follow in those moments? And so I want to make a quick, quick distinction about prophecy because we have a church that has a prophetic calling. We have a calling to be the hands and feet of God, to be the voice piece, the mouthpiece of God's word here at New Hope Kailua and all across the world. But at the same time, There's a gifting that some of us in the church are gifted prophetically and some of us aren't so much. But it's one of those things where when it comes to evangelism, we're all called to evangelize, but some are gifted at it. When it comes to shepherding, we're all called to love and show compassion, but some are really gifted at it. And so it's the same with the prophetic. All of us are supposed to prophetically be the mouthpiece of God the same way John the Baptist was. It says he was the voice, Jesus is the word. His voice declared the word. So John 1 starts off as. So here's a quick distinction, if you're trying to figure out, well, what does prophecy actually look like? Prophecy, to me, the two distinctions is this. Number one, it's foretelling. There is a, a, a level of prophecy that has to do with foretelling. This is what we see in Scripture. It's that these are things to come. These are, uh, these are events that will transpire. Oftentimes, if you've seen it in action, foretelling kind of looks like people knowing things about you in your life that you have no idea. They're like, they had no chance that they could possibly know that. This is a real thing. It's happened to me. I'm like, how did you, did I tell you? No, what? Like I've had these moments with people. There's people gifted in our church at this. Actually brought a Kainoa in the back. One of the best foretelling prophetic gifts I've seen. Honestly, guy's amazing. He loves Jesus. And so this is foretelling. That's part of it. The other one is forthtelling. I need to tell you what God wants you to hear in this moment. It's not about the future. It's not about circumstances, what's going to transpire. It's about what God has for your heart in this very moment. 
And so many of us have probably been on the receiving end of forthtelling. Someone who's told us something we needed to hear in that moment, and you realize human wisdom doesn't have that kind of insight. That had to come from somewhere else. Have you ever been in that situation? I have. I'm like, wow, I received that (laughs) because I trust you that you follow Christ. And when you say that to me, I'm like, wow, wow, maybe I do need to work on that. Or maybe that is something that is true. And so here's the thing. Forth telling. You think of another prophetic gift. If you ever, you guys all know Brother Jonah, yeah? Pastor Jonah. He's one forth teller. (laughs) He just, he'll say it how it is. And he says what needs to be said. And he corrects our spirits. And that's when you're around Jonah, you feel like, you have been a well-pruned bush after you talk with him. So we jump back in. This is, this is what I want to encourage us here this morning. Is that the prophetic is not some weird, you know, freaky-deaky thing that the Bible talks about, and it's all super mysterious and stuff like that. It literally is just being what God has called us to be here on earth. Amen? It's like it is, is walking in the truth that we already know. As Paul, Paul encourages, I think, the Corinthians, he says, walk in the truth that you've already known. They've already discovered. This is a prophetic calling. We know who God is. Let's talk about him. Let's say things that God would say. This is our prophetic calling as a church. Then he moves into chapter 11, starts at verse 1. It says this. He says, then I was giving a measuring, measuring stick, and I was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the number of worshipers, but do not measure the outer courtyard. Right? So what he's talking about is the temple of God, the altar. This is the community of God's people. This is the church. Go and measure the church and the number of worshipers, but don't measure the outer courtyard because in that time, the outer courtyard had strict regulations for Gentiles. The Gentiles could be put to death if they actually walked through the, the Jewish courtyards in the wrong form. Don't measure what's going on out there because it has been turned over to the nations. What's happening out there is chaotic it's full of wickedness. Don't measure that. Measure what's happening here in the house of the Lord. They will trample out there. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, if you want to do the math, 42 months is what he tells us in a second, 1,260 days, which is about three, uh, three and a half years, yeah? Three and a half years. And he says this, I will give power to my two witnesses. Now, this gets... Crazy. We'll try to do the best we can with it. I'm going to give power to my two witnesses. So God's going to bestow power on two witnesses of his name, and they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during those three and a half years, 1260 days. It's like, okay, wait, what? So wait, we have this three and a half year period where the holy people of God are going to be trampled on, but there's going to be these two witnesses who are standing in burlap prophesying the things of God. Okay. Tracking. Everybody tracking? Okay. So he moves on to say this. These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord on earth. Important language. It's very easy, we'll see, to think that God is going to send two human beings, two people, to stand up in front of the whole world and be these two witnesses that Revelation talks about. It's just not, I don't think that's the case. Most scholars also believe that olive trees, olive trees signify the people of God, the, the vine, the vineyard of God's planting. Olive trees and two lampstands. Lampstands is continual language that God calls the church. He's talking about church here. He's calling about the people of God are going to be a prophetic witness in the last times. 
to stand before the Lord of all the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. This is awesome. We're going to breathe fire, guys. This is how anyone, <laughs> yes, wait, what? This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have power to shut the sky so no rain will fall as long as they prophesy. And they have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. It's like, okay, well, what is going on here? Two, two things, two powers are mentioned specifically. Number one, we're, the prophetic witness of Christ in the end times is going to be able to keep rain from falling in the sky. The only person who did that in the Bible was who? Was Elijah. And it says the other one was someone's going to, the other power of the prophetic witness is they're going to be able to turn the water into blood. Who's the only one who could do that in the Bible? Moses, or the only one who did that in the Bible, Moses. So we have Moses and Elijah represented as these two witnesses. And it goes, actually kind of goes a little bit deeper. So check out some, some of these Old Testament connections. Malachi 4 says this, Remember the law of your servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all of Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Whoa, Elijah's coming back? This is crazy. Moses is coming back? Wait, what? In Matthew 17, transfiguration. Jesus is transfigured before his disciples, his face shining like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. Just then appeared before him who? Moses and Elijah standing with him on that mountain. What is going on? Are you telling me Moses and Elijah are coming back before Jesus comes back? Here's the crazy part. And why don't, I personally don't believe that these two, that, that would be awesome. But I think that there's something that else is going on. Remember when the disciples asked, and I think it's in Luke, disciples asked Jesus, when's Elijah coming back? He says he already came back. And he was referring to John the Baptist. He says that was the one who's leading the way for my coming. And so here's the thing. The idea here is we're not looking for actual Moses or actual Elijah. We're looking for a church to step up in its prophetic witness to be able to do what Moses did for his people, to be able to do what Elijah did for his people. Does that make sense? So the church has, it's not like we're actually going to be breathing fire and like turning things into blood. The point is that we have this power, prophetic power over the earth to demonstrate the God's authority, his power, and his might in ways that the earth can't handle. Isn't that amazing? And so this is, and this is a church calling. So this isn't a you and I, this is a us. It's on Kako thing, yeah? This is all of us as walking in God's prophecy together. So if you're reading that and you're trying to figure out who these witnesses are, and there's a lot of people who try to speculate, oh, I think this guy who's a great prophet in Africa might be one of the end witnesses or whatever. If you read that kind of stuff, just be like, eh, <laughs> it's likely not a human. Very likely. It's likely the body of Christ stepping up in prophetic calling to be for the people of God what Israel was, or sorry, what Moses was for Israel, what Elijah was for Israel. So, Revelation, moving on. In verse 7, he says this, then they complete their testimony, so they finish speaking the things of God when things are getting heated. The beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit, pause, fast forward chapter 20, guess who has the keys to the bottomless pit? Jesus does. So when, a, when something comes out of the bottomless pit, guess who's letting it out? Who let the beast out? Okay, so this is Jesus has control. Jesus has absolute authority. So when we see things coming, we're like, oh no, the beast, something is attacking us. Something is spiritually against us as a church. Guess who has control? Guess who has keys to the bottomless pit? Jesus does. 
So, Kiana continues on. Their bodies, oh, so it says this, the, they'll rise up out of the bottom of the pit, declare war against the people of God, and he will conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the city that is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. What does Sodom represent? The wickedness of our own rebellion, trying to do things by our own accord and not in the ways of God. What is Egypt? The place of slavery, where we live in bondage and we have no freedom in Christ. This is what Jerusalem is going to represent. The city where the Lord was crucified. And in three and a half days, all peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will stare at these dead bodies of the witnesses. No one will be allowed to bury them. But alas, all the people will belong to this world will gloat over them and give each other presents to celebrate the death of the two prophets who had tormented them. Wow. The world will be happy when the prophetic witness is temporarily silenced. When we are shut up, when we are killed for speaking the things of God. But after three and a half days, God breathed life into them and they stood up. We are a resurrection people. We follow a resurrected Savior. And so by no surprise, when the prophetic witness goes out, if we experience any kind of death, we expect resurrection when Christ dwells in us. So this is the, this is the promise. After three and a half days, God breathed life into them, and they stood up, terror-struck all who were staring at them. <laughs> Can you imagine the faces of people after they kill people who are saying the things of God? rise from the dead, and ascend to be with God. It's just like, I did not see that coming. This was like round two. This is the reactions of people at, Christ, at Christ's resurrection, right? You think about the Roman soldiers and other people who are witnesses there. Same reac reaction, just dumbstruck. Oh my gosh, what is going on? Then a loud voice from heaven called the two prophets, hey, come up here. And they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. Wow. This is very, we could talk about this passage all day. But here's the point. The church has been called to be the, the prophetic witness of Christ here on earth. Amen? And that, doesn't, that means you and I, and that means us together. And so there are things that we do when Christ dwells within us that the world looks at and says, I don't like that. I don't like what you're saying. I don't like how you're acting. But for us, it is continually being the salt and the light on earth. This is what we do. And I want to encourage you. Here's a question for you to just chew on as you go home, you process, process it this week, is how important is your witness personally? How important do you take your own personal influence for the things of God in your circles? It doesn't have to be big government level kind of stuff, just in your own family. How important is your witness? Do you care if people are like, oh, you're a Christian and you talk like that? You're like, yeah, whatever, I don't care. You know what I mean? Are there things that you are currently, hypocrisies that you're living through? Are there sins that you're like, ah, I can let them linger? Are there things in your life that are keeping you from being the witness God has called you to be, but you're like, ah, it's not that important? Because we all mess up, right? But here's the thing. Yes, there is grace, there is forgiveness for us in our sins, but I want to tell you this, this right now. If everything was stripped away from you, if you lost your job, if you lost your family, you lost your friends, 
everything in life was taken from you, the one thing that I believe is the most important thing that you can lose all of that. But once you lose your witness for the things of God, I can tell you this, that is the most important thing to hold on to. Because your calling, your destiny, the purposes that God has put in your life all depend on do people see Jesus in you? If they can't see Jesus in you, all of that's in vain. Yeah? So if I can, I can perform, Paul says it best, he's like, you can perform all the miracles in the world, you can speak in tongues, but if they don't see the love of Christ in you, you're like a clanging symbol. So all of your talents, your gifts, everything that God has put inside of you mean nothing if you've lost your ability to influence somebody for Christ, that they can't see him in you. And so, really cool story. I heard a story about um, some names. You guys know these names. Francis Chan. I was listening to him talk. Francis Chan hung out with Benny Hinn, and everybody was all mad at him for hanging out with Benny Hinn. If you don't know who Benny Hinn is, he's one healer, televangelist type, so he makes a lot of money going, putting on these rallies where people would get healed, and people are always skeptical. There's always throwing shade at him for all kinds of different stuff. Francis Chan sits down and has lunch with Benny Hinn, and he's thinking Benny Hinn's going to try to give him some kind of performance-oriented lunch and just kind of like talk about Lord in some high makamaka kind way. And he said it was the best conversation I ever had. He stood up and he said, you know what, guys? I don't know if you believe this. I'm struggling right now. This is Benny Hinn. I'm struggling right now because I've gotten so attached to my money. I've gotten so attached to my ministry. I've gotten so attached to all the ostensible things that are happening in my life that I feel like I've lost the trust of God. Like I feel like he doesn't, he's not using me anymore. And he points at Francis Chan. He says, you young man, he trusts you so much. He has so much. And, and Francis Chan's like, oh my gosh. But he says, if I could give up all of this, my ministry, my money, everything good that I have in my life, if I could give that up to feel trusted and used by God, I would give that up in a heartbeat. This is the power of our witness, that somebody who's had it and lost it wants to give everything away so he can have that back. And if you're like, wait, God doesn't do that, right? God always loves us. He loves you so much. He's going to forgive you for anything. But remember the, the exhortations for the churches in the beginning of Revelation, Laodicea specifically. He says, because of the sins, the wickedness that you guys are tolerate, I'm going to remove my lampstand. I'm going to remove my lampstand. What does that mean? Here's, I'll show you a glimpse of this. Do you know what this is? I just told you. It's one lampstand, guys. It's a lampstand. If I told you what is this before I told you it was one lampstand, what would you guess? Yeah, right. A cat, probably something a cat sleeps on or something like that, right? What is this? Because without, this is what a lampstand does. This is what our church is called to, is we carry a light, just like that. As soon as I put that on top, you guys know this is a lampstand. Yeah, it's on candle stand. But here's the thing. God needs to be elevated in our world. This is what co-laboring looks like. You and I work with Christ within us, Christ among us, to be able to be Christ to the nations, to our tribes, to our families, and so with Christ elevated high, people can see him on a clear night in the darkness. We look vividly different than what the world around us is, is going on. Amen? But here's the thing. If God's like, if this is shaky, if this is like broken and bent and all busts up, God's like, sorry, I need someone who can hold me up high. And this isn't a, a God being mean thing. This is a God has a mission thing. God has a, he's got a job to do. He's trying to fill a banquet hall. He's trying to get people into his kingdom, his loved creation. 
So our job is not to condemn the world. Our job is to love the world to, so that they can see Christ. And so will we get trampled on in that process? Of course. But here's the thing. There's nothing worse than God being over here and us feeling distant as a lampstand saying, oh, I remember the days when God used to trust us, when we actually did God's will, when we actually shone a light in our community, when we actually did take care of the poor and the sick around us. Remember those days? Those were the good old days. I never want to be a church that gets there. Amen? I want to be a church with such a strong lampstand. I would build one foundation, like way fatter, so we could just like be beefy in this community. You know what I mean? Like I, I, this is what we hold on to, the calling of our witness, that we're called to be different. We're called to be the salt and the light. You know what I mean? If, if, you, if you're living in a culture that says, we don't want salt on our food, what's the point of being salt? Because they've been so turned off by who you are. And so I want to give you these as exhortations. I recently did a podcast um, on this idea of deconstruction. I don't know if you've heard this. There's people my age who grew up in church. Choke of them are leaving the church right now. Tons of us, millennials and Gen Zers, are following in the same trajectory. And if you ask them, what is it about why you're leaving the church? They won't say it in these words, but it's because the lampstand isn't as strong as they thought. They're reading scripture and they're like, the church is supposed to be something way different than what I'm seeing. And so here are some ways we need to check our own hearts to protect our lampstand, to protect our prophetic witness. Number one, these are things that threaten our witness. Mingling with the world. This happens in your life and it happens corporately. When the church starts doing things that the world is doing, it starts following success in the world's way of success rather than seeing what God says success looks like. This could be you, um, your ethics and your morals. This could be your... Uh, your personal life with Christ. You may be slipping and you may be having these kind of um, dualistic, I should say. Don't be offended by that. But this, I have one face at church. I have one face at home kind life. That's not the life we're called to. Yeah? So this is all of us. We mingle with the world. We allow things to sit and linger in our lives. Pain. We have unforgiveness. We have sin that's unrepentant in our hearts. And this is actually ruining our witness because people look at us, not, not to be perfect, but they look for transparency. They look for us. And oftentimes we put on our own sense of self-righteousness and be like, no, look, I'm great. I'm a Christian. I follow the Lord. I'm one of his people. And then as soon as they see brokenness and we're not confessing to that, they're like, I don't want to be a part of that. We lose our witness. Hypocrisy will kill the church. Another one is this, is dancing with the empire. So many of those early Revelation churches we're called to get away from Rome. Distance yourself from the things of Rome. When Caesar tries to put his hand in your pocket, take that hand out and say, don't, away with me, Rome. Don't be a part of that. And we do have a very politically inclined culture that we live in here in the States. And so the church is constantly trying to dance with the government and trying to make something work. But so many people are looking at that on the outside and they're like, it muddies the waters of our witness. It, it murks, makes murky the light that we've been called to shine. And so we, we don't get too close to the empire. Number three is this, a lack of unity. One of the things that bothers my generation the most is they look at the church and they're like, how come churches, how come there's so many? And how come you guys don't like them? And how come you guys don't believe the same thing as them? And how come you guys talk stink about them? And so the lack of, we all follow Christ, but we all do it in our own little hooies is problematic. The unity of Christ is one of the most miraculous witnesses of who the Holy Spirit is. Isn't that amazing? So the fact that you and I can be Jew or Gentile, slave or free, man or woman, we all become one in Christ. That's a miracle. People need to see that miracle. Amen? Lack of transparency. 
This is happening a lot in our culture right now with church leaders falling and all these hidden, swept under the rug sins are kind of coming to surface. We can't do that. <laughs> we can't do it. And I'll be the first one to tell you if, if, if God, if, if, if I am um, in sin in some major way, which I don't believe I am because I have guys, I have men and my wife, and I have people in my life who will call that stuff right out of me. And if that ever happens, the goal is I'm going to be so transparent with you about it because the more we hide that kind of stuff, the more it affects the faith of all who watch. And so we got to live in a time where this transparency is the transparency of being a broken vessel to recognize that I am broken, I am mended, and I'm in need of Jesus. And I have no shame in sharing my sin because I know we all need a Savior. And the last one is this, the lack of power expressed. People are looking like the church is supposed to be one powerful lampstand in our culture. And for many of us, we read about healings, we read about prophecies, we read about these extreme miracles that happen throughout Scripture, and we fail in many ways to kind of walk those things out. And this is kind of how I want to invite us to end today, is being like, man, if God has called us to do a mission, the best thing I love is this. The finger that points is attached to the hand that provides. God will give you everything you need when he points us, you in a direction. He will take care of everything you have. And so for us, if our calling is to be a prophetic witness, he's going to give us the prophetic voice. He's going to give us healing. He's going to give us miracles. He's going to give us all those things because his kingdom come, not ours. Amen? And so this is where I want to leave us today with one story. I talked to um, a friend. They've been over here the last couple weeks. He's a missionary in Japan. And he had this beautiful conversation with a girl this week. I had to share it. In Japan, living for Christ is very hard. It's, there's a lot to give up. There's a lot at stake. And she went to be a part of this program where this guy was running a kids program. And she kept looking at him and being like, this guy's different. And she couldn't figure it out. Japanese guy. The way he loved kids, the way he went out with his family, he, the way he treated his wife, uh, the way he spoke to people, the way he actually made eye contact. And it's like he's looking into you as a human. He didn't see you for your image. He saw you for who you were. She could see this happening. She's like, what is this? There's something different about him. So she met with my missionary friend because she found out he's a Christian, and she says, why is he different? And my friend told her, he's like, because he loves Jesus. And here's what that looks like. When we love Jesus, we have this calling in our life that it's not on us, it's on the, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes inside of you, he will radically change you. He will change the longings of your hearts. He'll change the way you see people. He'll make it so you don't see people as sinners, but he'll see the people, the beautiful humans that he made that are worth redeeming and worth restoring. That's how we view people. Our battle isn't against flesh and blood. It's against the principalities that take people out of their God-given calling. So you start seeing people different. And when you start seeing people different, you start being different in community and we come together and we share life together. And we share, when we share, we share openly and transparently. And we all pray for each other and we edify each other. You know that word edify, what that means? It means literally to build. It's building home. When you edify someone, I am preparing the soil for God to make home in your life. I'm not just, not just for your self-esteem, it's not so you feel good. I'm actually edifying, I am building you up so that God can rest in your life. This is why we edify each other. So if we are missing those intentional relationships to edify each other, to build each other up, and we're just kind of playing church, and we're showing up, hey, how was your week? Great. 
See you next week. But those relationships aren't forming. We're missing a beautiful opportunity to be a light in this community. Amen? This is all of us, myself included. So we got to do this. We got to step into this. And so the ending of that story, this Japanese girl is talking with my missionary friend. And he's just like, look, I can't explain all the details. I can't give you all the right answers. But I can tell you this. Jesus changes lives. He changed mine. He changed that friend you saw. They're radically different people. And there is nothing that you can argue against that. Her, she didn't need convincing because she already seen it in action. So in that moment, she's just like, can you pray for me? I want to be one of those Jesus people. And in that moment, he prayed for her, and it was amazing. It's just, it's like, wow. Could it be that the world doesn't know us by our politics? Could it be that the world doesn't know us because we have the right answers, but because they would know us because of our love, as Jesus told us? Could that be the case? And if that's the case, may we love better. This is what's happening here. God is stopping John and saying, hey, forget the chaos for a second. Don't forget what I've called you to do. Love people, love the world the way that I've called you to do it. So we're going to end with a worship song. Could you stand with me and we're going to pray together? And I want to just kind of pray a, a reestablishment of this prophetic calling just over our church at New Hope Kailua. Because as I was just thinking about it and praying about it, I was just like, wow, God, what would it be, what would it mean for our church to have such a strong and tall lampstand that people from all over Kailua, all over the windward side would come and show up and just show us what, just tell us like, wow, I, I've seen you guys, I've heard you guys. I want to be a part of this. Not for anything in us, but by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. So let's bow our heads. Jesus, God, we are so grateful for you. Jesus, we are so grateful for this life you've called us to. We pray, God, as everything in life will get challenged at one day, in, in one way or another. We pray, God, we would never lose, we would never freely give up the witness that you have called us, that we wouldn't throw in the towel and be like, hey, it's too hard being a Christian. I'm tired of trying. I pray, God, that you would give us a spirit of endurance, not a spirit of striving, but a spirit of leaning on you for all things we need, our daily bread shepherd. So, God, I pray right now just for anyone in this room who feels like they're living two different lives and they need a transformation. They need the Holy Spirit in a brand new way. I pray, Jesus, that you would enter them today, that you would change them. God, that you would help them to trust the process. God, that we wouldn't judge ourselves for our own brokenness. We wouldn't get cruel in ourselves when we mess up. But God, that we would trust that you are doing something in this world and that you're calling us to a greater purpose than what our lives offer us. And so God, help us to be the church again. Help us to be this lampstand with a renewed witness, a renewed passion to hold that candle high and say the light of the world lives here. Come join us. And so, God, I just pray right now for every man and woman in our church, in our community, God, the families that you've given, the circles that they represent. I pray, Jesus, for one prophetic witness, that there would be more words of affirmation, more words of knowledge, more words of wisdom given in the right time. God, there would be no apprehension in our hearts to say the things of God when they matter most. God, I pray that this would be the true reality of the hearts and the spirits of our church. And God, we know that there's fruit after that. We know that your banquet hall will be filled because people want to be with you. We know that deep down. And so God, we just pray for all of these things as one church ohana here this morning. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. All God's people said, amen.